Welcome to the July 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, Family Tree Magazine's Amanda Epperson is going to be here to shine a spotlight on U.S. marriage records, how to find them, and what they can tell you about your ancestors. And then we're going to be meeting up with Diane Southard in our DNA Deconstructed segment where the subject is why it's worth taking the time to add your family tree to your DNA account. Lisa also is also going to be here. She's going to be talking about Trello. It's a free organizational tool that you can use to help you plan out your genealogy research. And we'll be wrapping things up at the Family Tree Magazine editor's desk with Andrew Cook. But first, let's check in with Rachel Fountain to see what you have to say about your genealogy research in Tree Talk. Marriage records are essential to genealogical research. Not only do they document the union of our ancestors, but they sometimes include women's maiden names and other hard-to-find information. Well, Family Tree Magazine new media editor Rachel Fountain has been on social media learning more about what you guys think about marriage records, and she's here to tell us about it. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Always good to have you here on the Tree Talk segment. Let's ask this question because it's an interesting one. You were talking to folks about marriage records. It's a bit of a theme for us today in this episode. What were you asking people about it? So we went on to Facebook and Twitter and we asked our followers, how old is the oldest marriage record you found in your research? And we got several responses from you know all different times and all different places. I'm scrolling through now and I see 1782 Berlin. I see 1649 Quebec, Canada. Uh, 1479 in Oxfordshire, England. Uh, So just a ton of amazing responses. And one that's sticking out to me, our follower, Angie, she said she, the oldest marriage record she'd found was from the 1400s in England. And she had access to the original marriage records on vellum, which would be amazing. For those that don't know, vellum is a type of parchment made from prepared calfskin. So to have access to that original record must have been incredible. Oh, absolutely. You know, how interesting in asking a simple question like that, how it really reveals the the breadth and depth of marriage records. I mean, here in the U.S., they're so much more recent. But it's really eye-opening to think about how far back they are in so many different locations. And also that, uh, like Angie was saying, it may not be online, but... If you get the opportunity to go into an archive in one of these locations, you know, to see something that old is just incredible. It's such an important piece of of history. It is. It's. It must have been a surreal experience for her. Yeah. Oh, and how cool. I know not only do marriage records come um, in different formats, but there are different types of marriage records, obviously, more than maybe people realize. Um, you know, it isn't always the marriage certificate. It could be anything from bans to bonds to declarations of intent and even newspaper announcements can be technically classified as marriage records. So um, for anyone that's interested in learning more about all the different types, um, there is an article on our website from Maureen Taylor. It's called 12 Types of Marriage Records to Research. And I find that it's a really good overview of 
all the different forms that marriage records can come in and maybe some that um, you haven't thought of. So if anyone's interested, I will link that in the show notes as well. I highly recommend that. It's interesting when you're out looking for records, you don't always know what you don't know. And to to see that really comprehensive list that she's got there can help open your eyes and kind of keep you out there looking for things that that are, are unusual. I know I found a, I think it was an application for the marriage license, which in many counties oh. is totally not available. But in a county in Indiana, it was. So I got the marriage license and the application, which had the mother's maiden name. So it was really, really cool. Interesting. Well, we'll have a link to that article in the show notes. Super helpful. Thank you, Lisa. At Family Tree Magazine, we like to shine a light on the most important sources for your genealogy research. And marriage records certainly do rank up there at the top of the list. Well, there's a new column in the Family Tree Magazine, and it's called Source Spotlight. You will find it in the July-August issue of Family Tree Magazine. And Amanda Epperson explains in the July issue how to research marriage records for genealogy. And she's here to get us started. Welcome back to the podcast, Amanda. Thank you, Lisa. I'm pleased to be here. I love the idea of this column really focusing in on one type of record. Why did you decide to shine a light on marriage records first? I think partly because one, they're a solid link that joins two of your families in your tree together, and that's the evidence for it. Um, So they're really crucial to genealogy research. And also they were an important contemporary document as well. So to confirm inheritance, to make sure people weren't bigamous or um, too closely related to each other. So they were a record that was very consistently kept um, and also amongst the earliest kept in a given location. I know there's lots of different types of information. I know one of the things I'm always keeping my fingers crossed about are women's maiden names. Uh, Mm -hmm. What other types of information might we be finding on marriage records? Well, on the marriage record, you will almost always find the name of the bride and the groom, um, the date and place of marriage, and the name of the officiant. If you find a marriage bond, you will also find the person who served as surety or the bondsman. So this was money that was promised in case... um, you ended up being too closely related and couldn't be married. Um, There might be a court case ensuing from that. So the county wanted to make sure that they weren't liable. So, um, but the interesting thing is surety almost always comes from the bride's family. So that can always be a good clue. Um, The more closer you get to modern times, the more likely you are to find additional information, like the names of the parents, occupations of the bride and groom, where they actually lived, and the names of the witnesses. Um, The one thing I would point out is the name of the bride at the time she was married. So if she had been married previously, the name on the marriage certificate would be the name of her first husband. Um, So that's always something that's useful to keep in mind. If you're looking for a Betty Smith who married John Jones, and you can't find Betty Smith anywhere, that is perhaps because her first husband was a John Smith, and she was really, you know, Betty Reynolds or something like that. So right. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot of great information to find. Where do you suggest that people first look for marriage records? And and I'm thinking we probably need to clarify if we're talking about church or governmental. 
Um, well, I'm sort of talking about both. Mm -hmm. um, and each colony in, or state was responsible for its own marriage law and records. So initially, these records are kept, hopefully, um, at the state level. So it's not like places in Europe where there's a national-wide database of marriages. So um, and each state had its own marriage laws and recording requirements. I think the first thing to do is to check all the main database websites like FamilySearch, Ancestry, MyHeritage, um, and search for the county or the state where your ancestor lived and see what databases or information they have available for you there. Um, and look, and while you're there, look under vital records and church records. Look for civil records and also for church records because some might survive and others do not. Some states like West Virginia have their own databases and in, with images of vital records within their state. So that's worth um, checking out as well. Another path to take is to look for published transcriptions. Sometimes even I find it easier to flip through a book <laughs> than mm -hmm. to search a database or go through microfilm. Um, so you can find them in these various places. Um, if it's a more recent marriage, you may have to go directly to the state to get um, and pay for a a transcription or an official an account of this marriage um, and you can always find more information on how to look for these marriage records or any kind of record at the family tree magazine state guides we have guides for each state that are our website or in the vital records section of our website for more information those are all great ideas i, I know sometimes though people do run into frustrations and challenges maybe talk about some of the ways that people can overcome some of those frustrations when you're trying to find marriage records so i can think of three um, the first one is that in um, u.s records second marriages usually are not indicated so so i've said the woman is named her name in those records is her first husband's name. And you quite often, particularly if this is a young woman who hadn't had a chance to have children with her first husband yet, um, this is very hard to tell. You can't tell from census records or from other records. Um, so you just sort of have to guess. <laughs> like, I'm not finding her as Betty Smith, so maybe this is a second marriage. Another huge problem is that the records no longer exist, um, either because they come from a burned county, the records were flooded, or somehow the records were destroyed, or just as bad is they were never created or it was never returned to the courthouse. So the marriage actually happened. The minister might have a record of it, but his book got lost <laughs> before he could get to the courthouse, <laughs> or maybe um, the clerk skipped that entry. So there's, um, as my grandfather was fond of saying, there's many a slip between the cup and the lip, and you might not really, really get what you planned. Um, the third thing I think and be a problem is, is poor indexing. Then, you know, someone can't read the names or they're not familiar with the names in a community. Um, so mostly that you're not looking for the name, how it is included in that index. So you're looking for Smith with an I and its index is Smith with a Y and an E. So, you know, it would just wouldn't turn up. Wow, those are all great suggestions. And you know, that's uh, the opportunity that this column really gives you, doesn't it, to really dig into one record set and highlight it. Um, we talked a little bit about why you selected marriage records. What can we look forward to in future Source Spotlight columns? Well, um, we're continuing on this um, vital records theme for the next two source, source spotlights. So we'll be doing one on death records and the next one on birth records to sort of complete the triumvirate of the big three um, vital records. And we focus on these and have um, created this new column because we really wanted to have a dedicated space in the magazine, which focused on records. And this is really important for both experienced researchers who may need a reminder and beginning researchers who may need more instruction and guidance 
on what to look for. And longtime readers of the magazine may remember our record workbooks and the source spotlight will have a similar um, focus. And we really hope that these columns will help researchers in getting all the information they can um, from a record so they can continue on with a successful research project. Well, I'm sure it will. Uh, those of you listening, you can find the Source Spotlight column on marriage records that Amanda's been telling us about in the July-August issue of Family Tree Magazine. And Family Tree Magazine premium subscribers can also find that article online. So I will have a link to the issue and to the article in the show notes for this July 2021 episode. Wonderful to talk to you about marriage records. I look forward to future record collections in your source spotlight. Thanks so much, Amanda. Thank you, Lisa. If you've tested your DNA in hopes of expanding your genealogical research, you may have noticed something rather frustrating. A lot of your best matches haven't uploaded their family tree to your testing company's website. And if you haven't uploaded your tree, you may not be getting the most out of your own DNA results. Well, here to make the case for adding a tree to your DNA results is your DNA guide, Diane Southerd. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. This, I think, is forever one of the points of frustration for DNA enthusiasts. It's so frustrating when you get into that website and there's no tree posted. And yet, I still talk to a lot of genetic genealogists who have not posted their own tree. I know, because I've been at conferences with you and I've watched people walk up and go, well, do I really need to do that? What do you tell people? How do you make the case to them that it's worth that little bit of extra effort? Yeah, well, I think number one is I try to alleviate any concerns they have. Like a lot of people who's who are working on a particular line, they don't want that information out there because their tree contains their guesses or their right. research, right? And they haven't verified it and they don't want to put it out into the world for other people to criticize. And so my number one like way to alleviate that concern is just say, you don't have to post your like working tree to your DNA test results. You can post just a portion of it. So I teach a lot about how to create a DNA ready tree. So just a tree that you can just link to your DNA test results, something that you're confident in. You don't have to put any pictures if you don't want to. You don't have to put any of that media maybe that you've gathered that perhaps you don't want out there in the world. Like you have to have something though. <laughs> and that's, and, and that's, I guess that was your actual question was, you know, why, why do we need to do this? Um, Number one is I feel like it helps other people do the work for you. So uh, for example, right now we're in the middle of summer and I know a lot of you have had to put down your genealogical efforts to do some gardening or maybe chase some grandkids or you do a lot of other things in the summer, but there are a few people who now have more time right now this week than they've had before. And they're going to sit down and they're going to start doing their genealogy. And when they do, and they see you as the DNA match and you don't have a tree, they're going to get that familiar frustration. And maybe they're going to reach out to you and say, hey, do you want to share information? Instead of if you were there, you had your tree posted, they were on fire, they were doing research, they pull up your tree, they figure out how you're related. And now the message you get from them instead of, hey, do you want to share? It's, oh my goodness, I have figured out our common ancestor. It is this guy and this place. And here's all the information I have. And wouldn't you like to get that email? Oh, totally. You're, that's such a great point. Yeah, it's it's like it's the ultimate way to take advantage of other people's genealogy research time is to give them what you know about yourself already, 
So they can start putting together the pieces for you and you don't have to do the work, right? It's like the ultimate lazy person's genealogy. <laughs> Let somebody else <laughs> do it for you. Um, but there are some other reasons. Uh, most of our testing companies now um, are, well, not most, two of our testing companies are doing a lot with your tree data in the background. So both Ancestry and MyHeritage are using your tree to help you make those DNA discoveries. And so they've got big, fancy, really sophisticated tools at um, MyHeritage. It's called the Theory of Family Relativity. And at Ancestry, it's called Throughlines. And these tools are meant to give you big hints about how you're related to your matches without you having to go in and do all of the work. So it's like, it's, I call them cheating tools because, well, cheating, yeah, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. And that's how these tools are. But in order for them to work at all, you have to post something of a tree so that it has something to work with in order to give you these big hints about how you might be related to someone else. Yeah, but yeah, it's very similar to you could go on to uh, MyHeritage and you could be doing, uh, find, you know, look, doing research, finding articles and, and gathering them. But if you don't put the tray up there, then you miss all the hinting that can happen, all of the smart matches that can come your way. Same thing with Ancestry. So it's the same thing it sounds like with your DNA. Oh, for sure. It's the same technology. They're just taking advantage of it and using it in your DNA instead of just in your traditional research. It's it's really a beautiful merger of these two things. And it just allows you so much more power in helping understand how you're related to other people. Additionally, Ancestry has a wonderful tool and actually Family Tree DNA does as well, where you can actually take your DNA match and link them to their rightful place on your tree. So that you do all the research, this happens to me all the time, you do all the research, you figure something out, and then six months goes by and you come back, you're like, uh, who was that again? I feel like I figured yeah. out our relationship and I made this note that I thought would make sense later, but then I was like, wait, who is this? But now you can link, like actually put that person in your tree and link them to that spot. So you can do that at both Family Tree DNA and at Ancestry. And that saves me tons of time because then I don't have to remember. I don't have to make a really detailed note. I just put them in their place on the tree and then I can literally click a button and it shows me our relationship. And exactly. And as you said, um, you might have a tree where you're doing all kinds of different things on there. But a lot of people don't realize you can have more than one tree on a website like Ancestry. So you could Absolutely. make the, the DNA ready tree separate and have all this stuff happening over there without having the full tree doing all of that. Absolutely. So Lisa, you're always telling people that you should be the owner of your own tree. You should yes. keep it on your own computer. And absolutely, but you should take a portion of that, whatever you're comfortable with, and make that your DNA tree and link that to your testing company website and let all of these wonderful things happen for you. Now, a lot of people have tested with family tree DNA. What's the situation with there? How is it different from, let's say, my heritage or ancestry? Right. So they just don't have that fancy um, hinting service that those two other companies have. It's really just your tree exists in isolation in their system. You can, like I said, link your actual DNA matches to your tree if you know how they're related to you. But there's no like interconnectivity. Um, you can do um, surname searches and things like that, but it's not nearly as sophisticated as the other companies. But still certainly valuable to see a match, be able to pull up their tree, browse it, look through it, see if you can find the connection on your own. Right. So more of a reference for you and your yeah. matches, mm -hmm. because there are no records <laughs> for right, it to, exactly. to connect with it as well. Wow. Okay. Well, it sounds like definitely it's worth the effort, particularly, as you said, because of 
all of the extra work that can be done on your behalf that you don't have to do necessarily, or at least it speeds it up. That's right. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I know that you uh, wrote about this, uh, the article over on familytreemagazine.com is the case for adding a tree to your DNA results. So we'll have a link in the show notes for that. All right, everybody's got a job to do until we hear from you next month. Thanks so much, Diane. That's right. Do your homework and we'll talk to you next month. When it comes to genealogy, there are never enough hours in the day to do everything that you want to do. And so it's pretty easy to get distracted when you do find the time by those bright, shiny objects, so fondly known as as BSOs. So what's a family historian to do to kind of try to stay on track? One of the best ways to streamline your research and stay on track is to develop a system to log and manage the seemingly endless genealogy to-do items that you've got. This is where a tool like Trello can come in handy. Lisa also is an expert in Trello, and she's the author of the new article on how to use Trello for genealogy. She's here to talk to us more about it. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Good to hear from you. Oh, it's great having you back on the show. I know you've been a longtime Trello user, but that might be a new name to some people. They may not recognize Trello. So how about starting us off with kind of a a broad overview? What is Trello and what can it do? Basically, Trello, it's a free online collaboration tool, and it helps you organize projects into boards that are easy to navigate. And then inside those boards, you have lists and cards. And so it's a very free-flowing system that gives you a lot of flexibility to organize writing projects, research projects, daily calendar, and and to-do lists. Very cool. So now is this, this is a software program. Is this one that we subscribe to or we purchase and download? Or you said it was free, but I'm guessing there might be an upgraded version. Yes, it's cloud-based. So, uh, but they do have an app uh, for if for you know smartphones and tablets that you can download and you can work offline and then sync it when you're connected to the internet again. So, uh, yeah, but it's free. And then they have uh, different levels. So, if you're looking for more, uh, you can upgrade to some paid plans. You know, to give you more flexibility, more. Uh, tools and so forth. But for most genealogists, the, the free version will suffice. Terrific. Okay, so let's talk about then genealogy. What kind of genealogy projects could we use Trello for? One of my favorite things to do is to create a research log or a research task list. And One of the benefits with Trello is it's excellent for collaboration. So if you're working with a cousin or another researcher on a project, you can share your Trello boards. They can get a free account and you can seamlessly share a research board and then each of you can add to it and edit things. And what's nice is it keeps track of who does what when. And so I use Trello for a a research log. And one of the things that I've been doing in this last year is collaborating with my Slovak cousin who lives in London and we've been researching our great grandmother. And so we can dump everything into Trello into these boards 
and lists and cards and, and then easily keep track of things. So we can create checklists, we can add notes, we can add attachments. You can even email to a board, which is, is really handy. So that's one of the ways. I also organize blog posts in Trello. And I've uh, also, when I was going to genealogy conferences, I would create a, a Trello board for each conference. And then I could store my travel information, store my uh, schedule, uh, store my hotel information, and then even, even put a PDF of my handouts uh, right, right into Trello. So it really is a, a versatile tool. It sure sounds like it. And it sounds like it's probably a pretty visual tool. You mentioned boards and cards. And I, I imagine the beauty of that might be that you can kind of resort things, reorganize things. Is that one of the benefits? That's correct. Being visual, I'm a very visual person and me I like too. to <laughs> and I like to see things laid out in front of me, get that bird's eye view, if if you will. And so yeah, once you create those lists and those boards, you can drag and drop, you can move the cards from one to another, you can copy the boards. It's it's so seamless to to move through it. And I that's why I like it. And you can even add, you know, an image to it so you can you can really make it work for you. Now, I know that you're an author, you've written and published several books. Um, if somebody wanted to do a family history book, would Trello be a good tool to use for something like that to kind of I was th thinking about organizing chapters and things? Trello would work for that. You can you can certainly set up uh, boards. In fact, I'm actually working on a, a, a book project now. And I I find it easy to organize the chapters, also set myself goals like due dates, and then I can color code that with labels. I can also add research materials in. So for example, some of my research uh, includes maybe uh, newspaper articles that I've downloaded as PDFs or other you know, text documents, and I, I can add them into uh, the each you know chapter that I'm working on, so it is very visual. And one one of the things that it also has is um, there's a lot of templates that you can get free templates and and uh, so I, I find that organizing a family history is is very useful with Trello. It's good as a visual outline. I love templates because don't they just kind of generate new ideas? You know, you see the template and you go, oh, I know what I could use that for. <laughs> so it's kind of nice when it kind of prompts you like that. I'm thinking about um, you're putting things in. You were talking about being able to import things in, email things in. How about the output? What's that like? I know a lot of people worry about, well, if it's cloud-based, what if it, it goes away in five years? Um, what kind of output and how, how can you get your files and information out of it? That's the thing, though. It's it's kind of it's kind of limited in the outputting. So you can export it, but it exports it to something called a JSON format, J S O N, and it's so it's if if people are familiar with the term Kanban board, that's how it exports the data. It's not really a it's not really a text based. Uh, data, but you can, I think you can print the cards. I, you know, again, being cloud-based, 
the ideal thing is to kind of have it in the, the cloud. So it's really not a writing tool per se. It's more of an organization tool and mm. a, you know, how to keep track of things. But, you know, you can certainly, you know, copy and paste things in from your cards into, you know, a Word document or whatever. But it's the export is is not like you can't export it to a Microsoft Word or something. And as I said, getting that bird's eye view of a project. So, and, and one of the things that I found is that the collaboration is, uh, is the key here. So ah. you could, you know, collaborate with, you know, other people. And I, and I, and I see, I could see a use of, you know, maybe society members, you know, if they're, they're scheduling something or uh, maybe, you know, even someone like you doing a podcast interview, you could, you know, you know, schedule all your, you know, podcasts, you could have a layout of, you know, who you're having when and add different links and add different information and checklists and so forth. So it's really more designed, you know, as a cloud-based tool rather than a like software program that we're used to where you input everything in and then print it out. So, you know, it's, it's, it is visual and it is cloud-based. Well, that makes sense. It sounds like for the planning side of things. Absolutely. Yeah. And the apps are, are really handy. You know, I found that, you know, I could uh, sit on an airplane, for example, and do, do some things offline. And then when I, you know, got to my destination, once I connected to the internet, then it would just sync up to the cloud. So, uh, you know, if I didn't want to have, you know, use up Wi-Fi or whatever, so I could still work on boards offline by using the apps, you know, either on my phone or on my, my iPad. So uh, it does offer that kind of flexibility. Awesome. And it's free. Well, we've been talking about Trello and Lisa has written a great article. It's in the July, August issue of Family Tree Magazine. I will have a link in the show notes where you can get it online as well. Um, Great ideas. Thank you so much for for sharing the, the productivity and the possibilities with Trello, Lisa. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Before we wrap up this July 2021 episode, uh, let's swing by the editor's desk. And there we find Andrew Cook. He is the editor of Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Hey, we got a chance in this episode to talk to Amanda about that new source spotlight column, which sounds great. It's going to be coming up in the July August issue. So uh, how about you giving us a preview of what else we can look forward to in that issue? Yeah, we are really excited about that new column. Um, and it's just one of our great columns. Another one, Lisa's Picks, a great column. <laughs> Thank you. We have. But yeah, this July-August issue is all about online research. So our cover story is our annual list of the 101 best genealogy websites. And I know Courtney was on last episode to talk about the online version of that list. Um, the print list is, it's a beautifully designed 10-page feature. It's got all 101 listings with a little factoid about each. And um, other articles in the issue include a tutorial for how to use Trello for your genealogy research, a very useful organization tool. And we also have Sonny Morton writing for us about the different kinds of photo touch-up programs that you can access now from MyHeritage and VividPics. Awesome. Yes. And she's been here on the show talking about that. Mm-hmm. That's a great article. It's very detailed. So uh, it's it's so fun to do this podcast because it gives us a chance to 
bring th- some of those great authors to the show and people can hear from them. But it's really the issue itself that has all the good stuff and the, all the details. Yes. And another great article that we've got in this issue is on Italian genealogy research. Uh, Italian genealogy expert Rich Venezia writes about the 10 online destinations where you can find your Italian roots. Oh, how fun. Just in time for getting back out and about. We've, I think Rich was on the show a year or two ago, so it'll be fun mm-hmm. to hear from him again. Yeah. All great stuff to look forward to. Okay, so we will have a link in the show notes so everybody can get their July-August issue if they don't already have it or subscribe for the year. Uh, always great to talk to you. We'll look forward to the upcoming issues. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you, Lisa. I sure hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. And if you did enjoy it, how about heading to the ratings and reviews section in your podcast app and give us a quick review. Let other genealogists know what you enjoy about the show. Your reviews are key to helping others find the show and give it a listen. So thank you so much for doing that. And as always, I'm going to have links on the show notes webpage to everything that we talked about in this episode. You can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And while you're at the website, it sure makes sense to go ahead and sign up for our free Genealogy Insider newsletter. To do that, it's really easy. Just head down to the bottom of the website page, whatever page you're on, and click on the link for Family Tree Newsletters. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me over at my website, genealogygems.com. Here in your podcast app, do a quick search on Genealogy Gems and add the Genealogy Gems podcast to your podcast queue. And you can always find me over at YouTube as well. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.